This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. American history is many things, but it is most certainly a rhapsody, quilted together from the ragged patches of many disjointed stories, and yet somehow still managing to form a coherent whole. I'm Don Carlton, Executive Director of the Briscoe Center, a repository for the raw materials of the past, the evidence of history that we collect, preserve, and make available for use. Each episode, we talk to the individuals who helped create that evidence, to the donors who preserved it, and to the researchers who use those collections in their work. And we keep the American Rhapsody going. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which granted women the right to vote, is now a century old. Women's suffrage was one of the most significant political milestones in American history. The campaign for women to achieve voting rights spanned decades and represents a complex story of allies and partnerships. Nevertheless, many women of color remained disenfranchised well into the 20th century, a fact some white women greeted with ambivalence. To celebrate the 19th Amendment, to explore the history of women's activism more widely, and to bring attention to the Briscoe Center's resources for research on the subject, we've created the exhibit On With the Fight. On With the Fight was curated by Dr. Sarah Sonner, the Center's Associate Director for Curation. On today's episode, Sarah interviews Nancy Scassari, and Ellen Temple. Nancy Scassari is a director, producer, and cinematographer whose films have been broadcast worldwide. She teaches here at UT Austin, and she's worked with the center on numerous projects, including serving as director of Cactus Jack, Lone Star on Capitol Hill, the Briscoe Center's PBS documentary on U.S. Vice President John Nance Garner. Ellen Temple is a highly respected student of women's history and a former regent of the University of Texas system. She's the publisher of the book, Citizens at Last, which documents the women's suffrage movement in Texas. Ellen and Nancy are leaders of the team behind a new documentary, also titled Citizens at Last. The film premiered on Austin's PBS affiliate, KLRU, in March 2021. Citizens at Last follows the story of the Texas women who played a vital role in the passage of the 19th Amendment. It's a story of grit, persistence, and tactical smarts. But as the documentary shows, the 19th Amendment was also a problematic victory. Black women in the South continued to be subject to discriminatory Jim Crow laws, while Tejanas remained under the Patron system in South Texas. Exasperated but undaunted, black and brown women continued their fight for equal voting rights long after 1920. Citizens at Last relies on many of the same primary sources displayed in the center's exhibit On With the Fight. What follows is a conversation between Sarah, Ellen, and Nancy on how these historical resources are critical to our understanding of women's history. Welcome to American Rhapsody. So Nancy and Ellen, let me just start by asking you both to introduce yourselves. 
My name is Ellen Temple. I live in Lufkin, Texas, but I spend a lot of time in Austin. And I've been focused on women's history in Texas for the past 40 years. And I'm particularly interested in the fight for the women's vote. You know, it's been a great experience over all these years to really delve into these stories that nobody seems to know. I have an undergraduate degree from the University of Texas and a graduate degree from Stephen F. Austin State University. I've written history, published it, and uh, now I am thrilled to be working with Nancy on this film, Citizens at Last. I'm Nancy Schizari. I teach in the RTF department at the University of Texas in Austin. I've been making films for about 20 years and often specializing in films about people you've never heard of so or subject matter that's previously not been explored. And I had this wonderful opportunity to work with Alan Temple on uh, the story of women's suffrage in Texas, based largely on two important books that she published in the 80s, uh, Citizens at Last and The Diaries of Jane McCallum, and then a number of historians that have been connected to this project through Ellen's connections and Nancy Baker Jones. So we've been really lucky to be able to explore this subject with some really great people. So thank you so much for joining us. 2020 marks the centenary of the 19th Amendment, so we're at a natural point to examine this history. And so I wanted to ask you about the genesis of this documentary film project. What sparked the motivation to put this history on film? Well, I'll start, and then we, you know, Nancy and I have been working together now for two years, and so we can finish each other's sentences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I published those books back in um, 1987 and 1988, and other scholars have written great work on this women's suffrage movement in Texas, especially um, Judy MacArthur and Hal Smith. But I did kind of an informal survey with friends, and I say, I asked, you know, do you know who Minnie Fisher Cunningham is? And nobody knew. Do you know who Haviti Idar is? No. Do you know who Christy Adair is? Miriam Folsom. <laughs> and uh, no. And so somehow this story has not gotten into the mainstream narrative of Texas history, but it has all the elements that Texans love to know. You know, they love heroes. They love persistence. They love victory. They love. So to me, it's a very exciting story. And that's how I really wanted to do it. And Nancy and I met for coffee two years ago in Austin. and. I said, you know, I'd like to do a documentary. And she said, well, how about a documentary on the women's suffrage movement? That's been something you've worked on for a long time. And at our very first meeting, we decided to do this. We agree that it's an important story, that the vote is one of the most fraught issues of our time, and everybody wants it. And some people want to deny it. And it's all about power and the importance of this story and what it teaches us and how it inspires us is a reason that I wanted to do it. 
I wonder if you could say a little bit about how the scope of the project developed and changed over the course of your research and of assembling the documentary itself. Well, it was a long process because it's a long history and we didn't want to leave out the key players, but that makes it difficult. It's a lot easier to make a film about one person or a biopic or just one particular theme. But we had to weave together the stories of three or four major players in this history. And that was spanned over late 1800s through to 1920. So a 40-year period as well. And it took a while to build. So we built it pretty much section by section, starting with Mariana Folsom coming down into Texas. The Northern suffragists knew that they had to have Texas as part of the number of states that, to ratify a federal amendment. And Mariana Folsom was a Quaker and a, a Universalist minister was sent to test the waters. So she came down as a, as a speaker, well known as a, as a very good, powerful speaker, and she did toured the whole of Texas giving talks and about suffrage. And so that, that's really our introduction to the film. And it allows us to come into Texas when it was extremely rural. And these towns were separated like island communities, connected by railroads, but still communication was slow. And a lot of people hadn't heard these ideas on suffrage. So women are much more tentative in the South. And they came forward and you know, started becoming interested in suffrage. And then Mariana Folsom realizes that it's not enough to go town to town and talk to audience by audience. They need to move their campaign to Austin, to where the power is, to influence legislators, to try and you know, get something through an amendment. So then around the turn of the century, it shifts and you know, the search or the campaign really comes into the capital. And then we, you know, we talk about that period for a little bit and we introduce... Minnie Fisher Cunningham, who comes into the history through Galveston right after the storm. So the storm gives us an opportunity to to break with the late 1800s and come into the 20th century and the reform period, which was when suffrage really took off, not only in Texas, but all over the country. And Minnie Fisher Cunningham happened to be a pharmacy student at the University of Texas when the storm happened, when the famous storm happened. And she soon after gets married, comes back to Galveston with her husband and starts connecting with women's clubs that were very important to where women learned to organize and becomes an activist in the reform movement, trying to change all the things that were, were wrong with the food system. Women became, became more active uh, as reformers at that time than as suffragists. They started off feeling that Minnie Fisher Cunningham describes, and also our scholar Judy MacArthur describes that the difference between suffrage at the beginning, women tend to emphasize their rights, what was there in the Constitution should apply to them, they are humans, they, they deserve the right, they're citizens, they got citizenship with the 14th Amendment, but still there's not enough traction around women getting on board with just the, the rights argument. But the turn of the century, when women were, were experiencing they no longer had a cow to feed their children fresh milk, and they depended on industrialization for, for food, for, for housing, for sanitation, and saw so many things uh, lacking in that system that they started forming organizations to take that on. And that worked very well with suffrage to bring so many thousands of women into the movement. That's kind of, kind of where we, we started. Do you think that focus on reform and on those particular, like you mentioned, Minnie Fisher Cunningham's campaign about food safety? 
Do you think that was something that differentiated the suffrage movement in Texas from the national one more broadly? I don't think so. I think that this was a national movement. It happened everywhere. It happened in New York. It gave women an excuse to use the maternalistic argument that they care about their children, and they do, and they care about their families, and they, they turn those maternal instincts outwards. So for the first time, they had a real excuse to get out and campaign and go into the streets and to try and affect society around them, because before they were more, you know, the private home was was space that women occupied. So this got them out, and they realized very soon at the turn of the century that they needed the vote. These women that were reformers realized, we need the vote because we need to influence legislators to do good and, you know, to, to take these concerns into hand. So it was a huge push and really helped them. Then in our film, we have another big challenge was to show that in the Deep South, the federal amendment was not popular because of what had happened in the Civil War with Reconstruction. There was a, a white supremacy that was like a blanket over the Deep South. Men didn't want suffrage, and they certainly didn't want a federal amendment coming in that would bring any kind of interference to give women the vote that had any pressure on it from the federal government. So it was very hard for women to make the argument for an amendment. One of the things that we found in the collection that we put in the exhibit was an issue of the suffragists that has an article making the argument that women's suffrage will help maintain white supremacy in the South. So in in your research, did you start to see this argument emerge? Oh, absolutely. It was there with Kate Gordon. She focused on starting the Southern Southern Convention of Women's Suffragists. And she comes to Galvez. She comes to Hotel Galvez. She comes to Galveston at the Texas Women's Suffrage Convention. And she makes a case for women joining her movement as well as the Texas movement. And her movement was a a movement of white Southern women who used the argument that if more white women are given the vote, if we can can get our male legislators to, to swallow this, they will realize that if more white women are given the vote, then that will add to the white population of voters and, you know, will always keep blacks in their place at the bottom. That was about very openly. That didn't surprise a lot of people. Minnie Fisher Cunningham and her mentor, Annette Finnegan, who was the president of the Texas organization before Minnie became president, really didn't want to have anything to do with that argument. In fact, they newspaper reported Kate Gordon's talk at the at the convention in, in Galveston and also mentioned that Annette Finnegan said, we don't want to have anything to do with that here. And it's, we don't have a place for that, basically. And Minnie Fisher Cunningham, when she became president, never invited Kate Gordon back again. They did not appreciate that argument ever in their, the arguments that they made for suffrage. And it sounds like they openly pushed back against it as well. Well, they did, but then they were also politically expedient. They realized that if they opened the doors and encouraged African-American women to join the suffrage movement in Texas, it would make it very hard to get these male legislators that still wanted to preserve the status quo on their side. So we have an example in the film where Maud Sampson, who was the wanted to affiliate with the national movement, is actually rebuffed. Carrie Catt, who's the president of the National Movement, National Association of Women's Suffrage Association, says, no, please tell her if she can just wait, we're going to get the vote for everybody. But if we let her in, if she affiliates, it will embarrass the Southern 
a woman and just ask her to be patient. She gives that job to Minnie Fisher Cunningham, who then has, writes the letter. We've covered that in the film and we, we've kind of dramatized that little moment. So you understand that this was the decision they made. A political decision to mm-hmm. weigh mm-hmm. these considerations against each other at the time. And this was certainly not unique to Texas, I don't think, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, Alice Paul said to Ida B. Wells when Ida B. Wells wanted to march in the march, yes, march at the back. And she refused to in the 1913 demonstration when Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated. It was part of this understanding that to get the federal amendment through, they needed three Southern states. They needed the South. They needed some Southern states to get a federal amendment through. And they knew that if they became too democratic, it would jeopardize their chances. So they made a a political calculation. Yeah, they needed 36 states to ratify. If all the Southern states had voted no, it could not have passed. And so that's why Texas became so important, because it was the first Southern state to ratify. Of all the Confederate states, it was the first. That was a major breakthrough. Yeah. And we we got the vote here for white women because of Minnie Fisher Cunningham's political prowess. She was able to exploit a very important division between the Democratic Party, between the progressives and the conservatives. And the governor of the time, James Ferguson, was incredibly corrupt. He was taking money from the liquor industry. He was not giving any space to women's suffrage. He wouldn't even entertain a state amendment, which the Democratic Party did approve of in the Democratic Convention in St. Louis, there was no chance that he was ever going to come around. And she found a way to to make a deal because uh, he was basically impeached and she was behind a lot of that. So yeah. we explore that in the film. But before that, I just wanted to say, as far as the, the rights to vote, so when the 19th Amendment was passed, everybody, all women, got the opportunity to vote. That was in the Constitution now. It was It said... Sex is not an obstacle. But in the Deep South, there were already Jim Crow laws in place that had been left over from the days when Reconstruction, when the 15th Amendment was, black men were disenfranchised, when the Ku Klux Klan was active. So between legislation and terror, there was no way that the 19th Amendment could apply to black women as well in the Deep South. Some tried to vote and some were turned away. And the great part of it really is that while white women got the vote in 1920, African-American women in Texas then took the baton that had been passed from one generation to the other and took it further and actually have won us what we can call ourselves a democracy today. It was because they went on and challenged the white primary to the NAACP and got Thurgood Marshall on board to represent their cause. And we won the, the right to vote you know, outside of the white primary. Everyone. Yeah, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a major milestone in this expansion of suffrage to women because, because of those restrictive Jim Crow laws, Black women were denied the vote, even though in the Constitution they should have it. It was state restrictions that kept them from voting until the passage of the 1965 Civil Rights Act. And Texas women played a big role in rescinding the white primary law, 
in abolishing the poll tax, which took a constitutional amendment, and then in the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And we pretty much end the film with the vanguard of Black women in Texas taking it further, taking it to where we can call ourselves a a democracy. That's something that kind of came late in the film. I didn't know I would end it like this. And it was so great when it's quite clear African-Americans are often portrayed as victims in our history, but they're actually the vanguard in our history. If we want to call ourselves a democracy, it's thanks to people like Lula B. White that we've, we talk about at the end of the film, Barbara Jordan, all these women that kept on fighting, kept on pushing the definition of what it is to call yourselves a democracy. And it's thanks to them, you know, because in the 60s, half the United States was under apartheid. And we were fighting a war in Vietnam against communists. And the communists were always pointing out America calls itself a democracy. And, you know, people in the deep south can't vote. And so that argument, you know, we've been able to come closer to a perfect union. And so when we don't end the film on the 20th Amendment, we end it with these other pieces of legislation that have to be won by going upwards through the law, through the Supreme Court. And that was led by black women from Texas. So we're excited about that. I mean, that wasn't clear at the beginning. And uh, I think with Black Lives Matter, I mean, this all came much more into focus. We're just really excited that it ends on that note. Yeah. Yes, it's wonderful. It really strikes me how you can trace a line from Reconstruction through the fight for women's suffrage all the way up to the Voting Rights Act through this archival evidence. And I wanted to ask you, I'm curious if there were any specific things that you found, even things that show maybe the negative space or things that leave out information where that absence becomes evidence. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about particular things from the archives that helped bring that to light. Right. Well, we try in the film, we have our narration that sets things up and and tries to give historical context. But as much as possible, we've used real archives to let them say it in their own words. We don't need to say, you know, this happened in the Deep South because it was said by people. And towards the end, when ratification was being challenged by the anti-suffragists who came down in full force into Austin at the moment when the ratification was on the books, on the board, you know, we used some of their arguments. And there's this one Representative Mendel. Actually, he made this argument earlier, but he says it all. He doesn't want to open up suffrage because it it would mean his daughter and his wife would have to go down to the polls and elbow their way through hordes of black women. He actually ends his talk, which he was giving, with saying, and our women wouldn't really know what to do with the vote anyway if they got it. So he's both on the one hand infantilizing these white women and keeping them on a pedestal and at the same time using the uh, racist argument that, you know, we don't want a, them to mix or, or even to have all the hordes of black women coming to vote, which would threaten everything. Yeah, it's great when we came across these moments. And also we have this wonderful, incredible talk that Minnie Fisher Cunningham gave in Galveston to labor women. She comes in and says, when I first joined this movement, for me, it was all about rights, that somehow taxation without representation was horrific. How could that be? It was so unjust. And over time, I realized that women who are affluent will fare much better on fairness because they have property that they can rely on. But women like you in the audience who are working women, 
who are working in the cotton mills have nothing but your body to rely on. You need rights so that you can preserve your capital, which is your the labor that comes from you standing every day over these mills. And she said, and look at our sisters in the, in the West who have already got suffrage. They've been able to attack child labor laws. They've been able to bring in a more civilized working day instead of a 16-hour working day, maybe a 10 or 8. Who knows? But she made these labor arguments that were phenomenal because she understood injustice. And she also understood how to speak to people about it as well in a way that was really effective. We have some transcripts of her radio addresses, too, her later radio addresses. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, from <laughs> when she was running for governor as well. Oh, so. my. <laughs> nice. Oh, my goodness. So I wonder, there was one primary source that I came across that was a broadside arguing that women would lose, quote, superior status by gaining an equal vote with men. And so that seems to speak to what you're talking about, about this kind of dual infantilization and concern at the same time. It struck me also that there's a parallel there with later anti-ERA campaigning. Like I'm thinking of Phyllis Schlafly's work. Right. I think you'd have to attack it on class and race. Different groups of women based on class and race all needed suffrage for different reasons. And white educated women also needed suffrage. I mean, there was already two generations of college educated women by the 1915. So women already were educated. They were coming out of good universities with college degrees and they could not enter any workforce because there were no jobs open to them except secretarial jobs or you know one or two became doctors but basically they needed the vote too because they had no no place in society other than the home and so forth and then working class women really needed the vote because they needed to stop being exploited being paid half of what men workers were being paid and to be mothers and have see children working in child labor so they needed the vote too And African-American women needed the vote for two reasons, because of their gender and because of their color, they were being discriminated and experienced this caste system that existed for them. So the vote was important to give people a voice and to all come into this arena and say, you know, we want things to improve in different ways, all different levels. I I don't buy the, the argument, oh, these privileged white women. Yes, they were, but people like Minnie Fisher Cunningham knew that it was important across and wanted to push what we can call ourselves as a democracy. And she she was really inclusive, an inclusive leader, whereas many of them, yes, only dealt with their own class or their own small group of suffragists and kept things pretty elitist. But on the whole, the suffrage movement's really important. Half the population did not have the vote when we went to fight in World War I. And that was one of the arguments that they used How can you criticize the Kaiser for not having democracy and and call ourselves a democracy when half the population can't vote? And then again, in turn of the century under Jim Crow and Voting Rights Act, the same argument could be made. And every time it's taken people to organize and fight and use the law as much as possible. I mean, we learned so much about the NAACP. I had no idea they were, their tactics were so great to constantly use the law and say, this is not constitutional or you, you're not supposed to deprive people based on color. Let's take this to court. Let's go upwards. The black suffragists, when they were excluded from the movement, they didn't stop. They said, okay, let's join the NAACP because the NAACP actually has a place for women and let's push for the law to change. 
let's push for the vote because this, this was the prize that they wanted. And they, they went a different route. Because white suffragists who were affluent and educated had brothers, had fathers, had sons who were in the system, who were lawyers and legislators. So they could influence through their connections, their family connections. Black women couldn't. So they went a step higher and went to the Supreme Court, used the Constitution. Towards the end, we have Barbara Jordan's wonderful piece where she says, I was not in We the People when the founders of this country wrote the Constitution, but but I am now. <laughs> Let's go back to the Texas governors and Ferguson and what followed. I know that women's status as voters in Texas, women were granted primary suffrage. And Governor Hobby signed that primary suffrage bill into law. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how that worked in Texas and whether that was a unique status at the time. You know, when Carrie Capman chat, because I think one of the outstanding features of the archives is this correspondence that we have between Cat and Minnie Fisher Cunningham. And Cat came up with a plan, you know, they kept failing in getting the states to ratify state amendments. And so the plan was for some states to go ahead and try to get that primary vote. If they couldn't pass an amendment, maybe they could pass a law because only the legislators have to vote on it, whereas to pass a state amendment, the whole population of the state has to vote on it. And it kept failing. So she, in her brilliant way, was able to maneuver through this impeachment of Ferguson And then the lieutenant governor, Will Hobby, you know, stepped up and she helped. She just worked the political angle and convinced them that they needed the women's vote to hold on to the governorship. And I'll let Nancy take it from there because she's so immersed in these details. But it was a brilliant move. Right. Carrie Catt reveals the winning plan in Atlantic City, in, in their one of their conventions, she calls all the, the leaders from different states together, and Minnie Fisher Cunningham represented Texas, very important. She shows them a map. There's this meeting in the basement of the hotel in Atlantic City, and she reveals this map on the wall, and she says, this is going to be the winning plan. The states that are close to getting suffrage or state amendments will go forward. But the states, especially the ones in the South, we don't want to waste any more time and money and energy because they're not budging. The Southern legislators are not budging. So those states like Texas, like Tennessee, maybe, and Kentucky, other states, if you can get a primary law passed, in other words, if you get the right to vote in the primary, you have a say in electing the leaders in the primary from your party who could be sympathetic to suffrage. So as we know, Texas was a one-party state. Democratic Party represented the party of the Deep South. And so it was pretty much a monolithic party. And whoever emerged as leaders in the Democratic Party would then go on to you know, lead the state. And Minnie Fisher Cunningham realized this was quite a prize if they could win that. And she realized that she could do a backroom deal with Hobby, who had come into governorship because Ferguson quit. He was about to be impeached, so he resigned. So theoretically, he wasn't impeached. He resigned right before he was going to be kicked out of office. And that would allow him to come back and run a second time. So Hobby is made 
governor. And he then, when it's time for re-election, Ferguson turns up and runs for governor. And so that's when Minnie Fisher Cunningham went to the Speaker of the House, Metcalf, and says to him, well, you know, we have something to offer here. I can bring you women voters if you allow us to vote in the primary. If you give us the primary right, we will reward you with bringing women to vote. So he said, are you sure? And she said, yeah. And they went for it and Hobby signed the primary in place. And then Minnie Fisher Cunningham and the rest of these Tessa's leaders went to work and formed these hobby clubs and ended up bringing 360,000 women voters to vote for William Hobby in the primary. And he was then made governor. An effective political deal. Yeah. And set it up, you know, so that he would be willing to also vote before ratification when that came up, because that was in the works all this time, the fight for ratification of the national amendment. I wonder if the map that you mentioned is similar or the same one to the one we have on display in the exhibit, which shows Texas having achieved primary status and Mm -hmm. depicts liberty marching across the United States eastwards across the South, the wave of suffrage coming. Right. (laughs) That is a great image. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That in the film. I think Ellen told me that it was interesting that Tennessee was you know, the big story about Tennessee being the last they needed Tennessee and everyone. But if Tennessee hadn't voted for the amendment, I think Connecticut would have come along and made up the number of states that they needed to ratify. And I was surprised. I thought, Connecticut? Why weren't they early suffragists? Why did it take New York so long to adopt a suffrage amendment? And it was because the North exploited women labor and child labor, too. So they while the South was exploiting black labor and and Mexican labor, the Northern states were, some of them were afraid of suffrage because they would change labor laws. So it was interesting. That was something I hadn't ever thought about. Suffrage intersects with so many things in history. Yes. Nancy has totally immersed herself in this story. And it's been a beautiful thing to watch because Nancy is drawn on from the historians, drawn from the historians, drawn from the uh, documents, you know, drawn from the written record and put this together, this narrative together. And so, you know, I've read that documentary filmmakers are historians, you know, they're storytellers. They love a good narrative. Nancy Scassari is the epitome of that kind of documentary filmmaker It's been really an amazing thing to uh, witness and to be a part of. Thanks, As you know, any film is made with many people, and I've got a great team. We're all, every single person is bringing their best to this project, and that's what collaboration really means. It's when each person brings their best and understands the story and wants to tell the same story, and they feel passionate about it. So the editors bring their you know, their skills to bear to tell the story and the musicians that are composing music. I mean, everybody takes the story and then they use their particular talents and skills to hone in on it through what they can do. Yeah, sometimes I just feel like I'm conducting a bunch of great musicians, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's great. It's you know, I real- had no idea because, I mean, I've been immersed in the words for so long, you know, on paper. But when I witnessed a recording of an actor 
reading those words, it just brought tears to my eyes. You know, it moved me in a way that just words on a page cannot do. That is the power of filmmaking. And Nancy has this amazing ability to not only present the facts, but to capture the feelings. And I'm very excited about the film, as you can tell. One thing I think we ought to do is recognize the scholars that we interview throughout the film. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about your researcher that you had working in our archives. Could you say a little bit about what her specialty is and what she found? Oh, yeah. We wouldn't have a film without our researchers. And everybody stepped up in an amazing way. But Professor Jackie Jones from the History Department recommended a number of students who were probably looking for summer work, her, her doctoral students. And we had Gabriela Esparza and Ashley Garcia come on board. And, oh, my God, they are amazing. They just go into the archives, find us what we need, send us stuff that we didn't know existed. So they've been terrific and really very fast. I don't know how they do it, but they've been great collaborators, these two young women. And our one of our editors, Daniel Ernie, who's also a coordinating producer, also just discovered this incredible talent he has at doing archival work. And he's produced all these amazing images from visual archives that go well in the film. What kinds of particular things did they locate? Ashley and Gabriella found amazing newspaper articles about the Democratic Convention and the women suffragists who had formed something called the Golden Line. They lined the streets on the way where the delegates would pass. And and just wonderful descriptions from newspapers that brought these moments to life. And we wanted to have a little section on the pandemic that was going on while women were trying to get the vote. There was millions of people suffering from the misnamed Spanish flu because it originated in Kansas. But they found us extraordinary material there. And also the letters between Carrie Catt and Minnie Fisher Cunningham allowed us to create, I think, something that even people don't know about, saying this incredible documentary series, The Vote. You know, there's the two heroines there are Carrie Catt and Alice Paul. But Carrie Catt was such an amazing general, she was called. She, her relationship with state leaders was extremely important because of her winning plan. But she seems to have a special relationship with Minnie Fisher Cunningham. And the two women are, are similar in that they didn't come out of society women. They were kind of self-made women that came up through the ranks of hard work. And they both understood strategy really well. And they communicate in letters over the referendum that failed in Texas first, over the victories. And our co-writer, Laura Furman, who I, I really just have appreciated so much working with her, we've gone through the script and co-wrote lots of it. And she added this touch about the women. This struggle was so long and so hard that if they didn't have friendship between them, it probably wouldn't have been as easy And, you know, we show an example where there's a letter where it starts with cordially yours from Carrie Catt to Minnie Fisher Cunningham to her last letter, lovingly yours, may God be with you, bless you. And all these really touching kind of words between them. So, yeah, that's something the archives gave us and that our our archival researchers brought to us. So you can see the evolution of their relationship kind of blossoming over the course of their work on this. Yes, It's great that this project could bring all of these things together and I think show how 
archives can really trace these lines and illuminate things that we didn't know about before and provide this kind of mentorship and lineage. We have a suffrage banner and a flag in our collection, and those are both yellow in color. And we also have other objects that really speak to a visual language for the movement. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you saw these groups getting their message out. How did they visually use tactics to raise awareness and make themselves more visible? I read something really interesting about the 1916 Democratic Convention in St. Louis. I think there's a book about it, actually. And the women wore white so that they would show up in the newspapers, you know, so there would be that contrast. So they used the tools of their clothes and their colors. The color yellow is, my understanding, is the color for courage. So I think those symbols, you know, resonated across the board in inspiring people to get involved in this struggle. And a lot of the struggle was they got the word out through petitions, though, and pamphlets. They would print 100,000 leaflets. I don't know how they did it, but they did, and they would distribute them. So a lot of it was through handing out leaflets. The Texas suffragists didn't stage large demonstrations or anything that would really draw attention, except Minnie Fisher Cunningham did something similar in Galveston. When she wanted to attract people to suffrage, she she got suffragists in cars because cars were pretty new at the time, novel, and she had people go up and down the boardwalk and make a lot of noise. And but on the whole, they were it was a lot of lobbying and petitioning and handing things out. That's right. I mean, it was for the final push that final five years from 1915 to 1920. It was grassroots organization. The suffragists in Texas, they didn't have the big parades and the demonstrations and all, but they organized down to the precinct. Every county had a suffrage leader, and she had people in the towns or in the cities, in the precincts, who reported to her, and then she reported to Minnie Fisher Cunningham. So their organization was the key, I think. That grassroots organization was the key to victory in Texas because she could mobilize them. She mobilized them again and again. You know, to, she mobilized them because they only had 14 days to turn out that 360,000 vote margin for a hobby. And that was because she could call on them. You know, they were all set up. She could do the same when it came to uh, influencing legislators to vote for ratification, both at the national level and then when it came to the state. So that was so impressive. And I think that kind of sets Texas apart a little bit from the national, you know, from the Alice Paul kind of demonstration and, and all. Texas was a grassroots triumph. So the archives really show how she was able to build that network and bring all of that together through this this gradual work. Yeah, they went up against a machine, you know, the uh, anti-prohibitionists, you know, the liquor lobby, the the white supremacists. I mean, there were so many obstacles and they just did it through hard work, organization and political skill. They said, Minnie Fisher, later in an interview that you have there, I think uh, Ronnie Duggar did an interview with her 
in the 1940s, an interview with Minnie Fisher Cunningham in the 1940s that is in the Briscoe archive, which she said, you know, we weren't some starry-eyed, we were the best politicians of our day. Yeah, she says, uh, we went up against the most ruthless machine in the history of Texas politics, and we won because we were the best politicians in the room kind of thing. And this was as, as a response to an article that the Houston, Houston Chronicle had come out with an article on the, on the 20th anniversary of suffrage, praising women for their self-sacrificing work during World War II, which they had done, and portraying them as noble and self-sacrificing. And Minnie Fisher Cunningham replied to her friend, hmm, it's time we stop this kind of image. You know, we need to, we went up against the most ruthless machine and we won. <laughs> We were, we were the best politicians. So it was interesting that she was also countering, you know, the kind of stereotype of the self-sacrificing. Right. And also the, the idea that they gave women suffrage. <laughs> that was a false narrative. She wanted to dispel it. Yeah. It's really great that she describes it as, as you know, battle against a machine rather than martyrdom for a cause. So you mentioned that that one archive too. I wondered if you could just quickly name the Briscoe Center archives that you drew on in the film. Well, we have Ashley Garcia and Gabriela Esparza would probably know best which exactly, they would be the best people to say exactly which archives, but I know uh, some of the archives that I remember using were the, there were some very important letters from Carrie Cat to, I think, Tessa. And there was also a vast amount of information about Ferguson and impeachment. And we included in the film the way that impeachment proceedings were galvanized through the support from alumni from Texas, because Ferguson made a big mistake of taking on the University of Texas and firing, you know, trying to get faculty fired who were pro-suffrage and pro-prohibition, and that backfired on him. So The Briscoe archives are brilliant. They have that all covered. And we were able to use photographs and archives that are there about this particular battle with the university. So that was something new that we wouldn't have had without the archives. And all our film is based on archives. There's nothing we made up. It's all coming from the archival work of all the people that work in archives that are so vital to to history and to being able to make films or websites or all the things that we rely on. And the Briscoe Center was so helpful. Margaret, everybody there were, if we needed something, they would, they knew exactly where it was or they knew they could find it. And they helped us so much. Now, just to add to what Nancy said, the Austin Women's Suffrage Association records are there in the Briscoe. Collections of letters from Oscar Colquitt, you know, the governor (laughs) who was so much against suffrage. There's a Cunningham file at the Briscoe. Alexander Caswell Ellis papers are there, and of course, the James Ferguson papers and scrapbooks. Mary Gearing, you know, who was the Home Economics Department chair at the University of Texas, her papers are there. And the Will Hogg papers are so valuable. So Ashley and Gabrielle mined the papers at the Briscoe. And to just to echo what Nancy said, we could not have done this film without the archives and the archivists and historians. They're just vital to historians and to documentary filmmakers. So 
we thank you and appreciate all the support that you've given. This work would not have been possible without your involvement and support. Oh, you're very welcome. We really appreciate you saying that. Today's episode was made possible by the papers of Ann Richards, Francis Sissy Ferranto, Molly Ivins, Alice Embry, and Frida Worden, as well as the Women's Commonwealth Archive, the Lesbian Issues Collection, the Labor Movement of Texas Collection, and the Texas Woman's Christian Temperance Union Scrapbook. These collections join others at the Briscoe Center in helping to illustrate the achievements contradictions, and complexities of women's activism in Texas and across the United States over the past 150 years. To view the online version of the On With The Fight exhibit, please visit our website at briscocenter.org. People across America have entrusted this evidence to us, and it is used by people from across America In addition to inspiring their work, it inspires our own. Books, documentaries, exhibits, online repositories, and digital humanities projects. By collecting, preserving, and making available these materials, we help keep the debates and arguments about who we are rooted in evidence. And we keep the American Rhapsody going.